Let's go ahead and turn to chapter 13. And following this theme, I have an, a verse that I believe echoes well from Proverbs, which is in the 12th chapter at verse 15 and 17. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. Verse 17, he who speaks truth declares righteousness, but a false witness deceit. So you'll see how that both effectively and I think as well um, contemporarily fits with us in these times that we live today. When some of us were moving through athletics, most fondly do I remember it linked with athletics, there was a phrase that always meant something very special to us as athletes. Mostly I remember it on the gridiron, football. I know you look at me and say, you couldn't have been a football player. I was a giant in my day. <laughs> no, I was fast. <laughs> and I had sticky hands, so I could do good stuff if the quarterback got me the football. But one of the phrases that I remember was, assume the position, men. Now, it could have had implications such as a three-point or four-point stance or lining up on the scrimmage, but generally it was always associated with discipline. And so if you heard that and you realized it couldn't have application to being on the line of scrimmage, we're kind of there waiting. And I don't think it has anything to do with the snap of the ball and whether or not we are in position to move that ball down the field or defend the other team from getting one more yard. And so it was very clarified. You guys are not putting out. You guys are failing in the basics, the fundamentals. And so assume the position meant you would fall to your face and you would begin doing push-ups. And you would do them until you had no ability to do another push-up. That was assume the position. However, if on the gridiron that lesson wasn't sufficient and you ended up again in the locker room and you're basically removing your warrior's outfit and you heard assume the position, that had an altogether different implication. It meant that without your uniform, which had protective features on it, you know, we had rump pads, shoulder pads, pectoralis major pads. We were majorly padded. And you heard assume the position. It meant somebody was going to get a shellacking. The shellacking back in my day did incorporate wood from a freshly fallen tree. It had some engineering to it in which portholes were drilled so that, one, you could see clearly evidence that it would be the least amount of friction as it passed from his hand and stopped on your hiney. And it was always by reason of a violation of some kind. Uh, 
Back then, that's the way we as young men were corrected. We never despised the correction. We loved our coaches. As far as I can remember, I appreciate to this day the meaning behind assume the position. I did get strong with my team in assuming the position, and I got wise in taking on several occasions that what we call the board of correction. Things have changed a little bit now. We kind of counsel people through it. Hopefully they'll see it our way. We kind of put people that are needing a severity of correction into the corner. But nevertheless, that came to my mind as we're looking at this as a feature for today. For the characters are the same, but we're going to be emphasizing one that we were introduced to on the second round when God had made a decree that the kingdom of David would be split because of Solomon's reign. And what would be known as, in our understanding, heresy and apostasy. He led the people in his latter years to worship other than God, things made by men. He made allowances that just weren't right, unacceptable to God. And there wasn't going to be the sufficiency of time in his life to change anything. When I read to you that passage from Proverbs, he contributed significantly with his wisdom to what we would call the quips of his day, kind of the things that Benjamin Franklin would be noted of as a continental influencer of his times, clever observations that could be penned for how do I handle this? What is my charge in this situation? And then, of course, Solomon was privileged to write Ecclesiastes, which was being able to pen the vanities of life, in which he was able to go back and retrace his squandered time and be able to tell the next generation it's all about God, nothing about what your interests may be, nothing about what your compromises lean to. It's to know God. So Jeroboam and Rehoboam were still our figures. And if they were to be put on that gridiron today, we would see arrogance in them. We would see it by one who was always looking to cause trouble that was Rehoboam, and the other who was an oppressor, he was the one that probably would take the low blows, the clotheslines. He would be the one begging for penalties on what he would do to oppress either his teammates or to sneak oppression in towards his opponents. So in both of these situations, these men have not proven to be at all ones that can be entrusted with the kingdoms that they were given. And that begins to unfold literally a legacy of failure for Israel. With that, let's take a look and see what the scriptures are saying to us. Chapter 13, verse 1. There is going to be a man of God, 
and he will be sent with a message from God. And we're going to see things also in that assignment of duties in which there was a dereliction of satisfying it completely. Really, chapter 13 has hardship to it, but it also has hope and promise that is introduced. And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. Two characters right now, one who we've been tracking, and another one who we are following into this scenario. Jeroboam right now isn't what you would call in the position of managing his charge as king. If you would, he's in a position of basically taking on a priesthood. That's what you need to see. He's at an altar. Incense is burning, and probably some smoke from other things that have been placed on the altar we will discover. Back then, there was to be no confusion. There was one who would be overseeing the governance of God's people. There would be another that would be in charge of the governance of his priesthood, and he was not that man. David wasn't even privileged to do that. David was a king and a prophet, but he would not be permitted to be a priest. Even though the things that we see in his songs and psalms and the things also that we see of his devotional life seem to be indicative of a priestly mindset, he never took it upon himself. We only know of one event in which by intercession for the needs of his people, he entered in and gave sustenance from the table of showbread to his warriors who had been fighting valiantly. And there was no charge against him for that. And so David understood even his limitations, but he also understood the great liberty that God invited him to take advantage of. There's nothing indicative here that Jeroboam had that. And so he's being challenged. Why? Because at Bethel right now, this place, probably not more than two miles from where we see, uh, Bethel is where the man from Judah comes, and the altar right now is not really more than several miles from this point. But he's coming because as this action is going on, it's nauseating to the Lord. And he's basically challenging Jeroboam right now. He would be saying to Jeroboam in this, assume the position. That means not where you're at. Get back where you belong. And so verse 2 indicates that he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. So it's an interesting insight right now. He's prophesying to what, as an event, will happen about 300 years from this moment. In other words, God's saying, there's somebody coming down line that's actually going to be doing my will. And one would probably ask themselves, why didn't that happen sooner? And sometimes that we 
we also may say that culturally. Why isn't God bringing forth a deliverer sooner? It catches us as Christians because when we say that, we're literally saying, oh, I forgot he did bring a deliverer. He did. It's the Lord whom we serve. It's the Spirit of God who empowers us to serve him in the areas of administrating in the places that we're at. And I'm not saying any of us would suggest that there's a substitute. If anything, our anxiousness comes in terms of, Lord, when is that day in which all has been satisfied and you take us home? So we know that for us it interprets as a hope that we actually know the Lord will fulfill in bringing the church up into heaven and ultimately a pending wrath that will come down. In this, this prophecy that would not have been at all something that Jeroboam could have comprehended by name, Josiah, who's he? That didn't sound like one of my guys. Who is he? He's probably looking for a Josiah. But Josiah right now is 300 years yet to be put into a position which shows you the patience of God with regard to culture that ought to be assuming the position. What is the position that culture ought to be assuming? It's this, prostrating yourself before the mighty hand of God. That means humbling yourself, that in due season you may be exalted. You are exalting yourself, but the scriptures imply that in due season he shall exalt you. Because the culture in our day is doing from the perspective of the Jeroboams of our times, what is going on here. They are developing a religious system which is highly political, meaning that they are not distinctly operating as ones who govern civility. They are trying to incorporate spirituality that is deviating from the word of God. No difference. As a result, idolatry has now been committed to a heinous level in which in the high places which Jeroboam has built, there have been offerings. It suggests, but I have to say this with reservation, that there may have been the worship of Ashtaroth. There may have been the worship as well of baby sacrifices, Ashtaroth, as you remember, was sexuality. And the other was the sacrifice of infants. And so we with certainty would say that kind of fits with what we've seen and what we're fighting against, praying that the Lord delivers us from but it is a voice piece that needs to be able to resoundingly speak the word of truth and to depend upon God for whom he places in those areas of having a voice that can be listened to. So this is what is happening right now. The prophet sent by God with words from the Lord. A prophecy is uttered. It will come to pass. And in the meantime, the Lord will allow there to be what we would say is a practical miracle. 
And it is one in which it is not necessarily to awe a person in inspiration. It is to cause a holy fear of perspiration. It says this, He gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So getting back to this, what are the ashes? The ashes are offerings. Jeroboam, through a religious system that has been in place by those ultimately that were never vanquished from the time of both Solomon and Rehoboam, And so they're going into the crypts, sanctified areas for bodies that have deceased, and they're pulling them out, and they're offering them on this altar. In essence, it's dead bones being offered up as incense to God. It's a ritual of honoring the dead before God, who is the God of the living. Crazy. That's essentially what's happened these ashes that are upon this altar that, Reb, that Jeroboam is presiding over is an abomination to the Lord. This man says that in this, you're going to see my words echo truth to you in what will happen. And so it came to pass, verse 4, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel, that he stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Arrest him. Then his hand, which he stretched out toward him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. And so in our times, we have seen that as a public cry. Arrest them who are speaking against us. Charge them. Put them in shackles. Let them rot in jail. There was a Canadian pastor that was of notoriety now in terms of what he did voice. And that was when the shutdown happened and the Canadian police moved in to see that no church service would be conducted. And he was adamant his service would be conducted and he would not permit them to be in there. And he was carted off several times, and there were several times in which the word of the Lord hit their hearts, and he was untouchable. And so we saw that conflict even in our times, where what is it that we are to do when there is upheaval in civility and true spirituality is being quenched? For what? And why? Well, it's an attack of the enemy. And no doubt Satan is the author of this as well. So what happens as this continues is that as he stretches out his hand, and it's basically to physically stop this word from coming to pass, this prophet, he may have been one to protect that which was on the altar, but he may have made a physical intention of putting his hands on this prophet. The consequence for doing that was what we see here, a withering of the hand. 
The implication seems to be medical, and it's probably more closely related to a rigor mortis of the arm. It just turned to stone. He couldn't do anything about it. The stone altar, which has the bones of those they had taken unceremoniously and pathetically from the crypts, would have been the ashes. And so this king's hand cannot do anything. He couldn't pull it in. It's frozen. So there's two implications to it, either that it withered or that it remained in place in a state of rigor mortis or deadness. Your spiritual life, your civic duties, they're dead. And so as this occurs, as he utters a rest, as he tries to pull it back, verse 5 says, the altar also was split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. He remains true. He remains true to the word that he delivers and true to the God that gave him the message for such a time as that. The king answered and said to the man of God, please entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me. Let's stop there and see what he's saying. Pray, notice this, for the favor of the Lord your God. Why would he say that? How could he say that? Forgetfulness? He had been delivered an extraordinary message from another prophet in which in the renting of a garment and ten pieces of this robe given to him, he was offered a position that would probably not rival Solomon's but certainly be extraordinary and in comparison to that of Rehoboam's. The Lord basically would say, write your check, let me know what it is that I can do for you. I'm going to establish for you a kingdom that I am ordaining. And you'd ask yourself with that, why in the world would he choose to go in this direction in which at the consequence he loses everything? might be a question for the church. It certainly can be. Because as we talked about last week, the same, if you would, predicament is still there. Will the church remain true to truth? And will we remain walking with God when it gets hard? Heresy is when truth is denied or rewritten concerning doctrine. And apostasy is when literally a person turns his back on God, choosing to return the other way. What's the other way? In picturing it, it means from what God rescued you from. It would be return to carnality. It would be basically saying, I don't care about spirituality. I do not care about truth. Truth is going to be what I want to define it as. And we've seen that pervade 
and defile the education system. We see that today with regard to this acceptability of sexual fluidity, pronouns now that make absolutely no sense, and I'm not intending to learn one of them. I know what a plural pronoun is, and I know what a singular pronoun is. And if I can sufficiently use that in the construct of a sentence, I am not willing to consent to identify with somebody else's confusion about what the Bible has told us is true. He created man, he created woman, he created them in his image. Male and female, he created them. That's good enough for me, and it's provable in whom I see in you. Nothing could be more provable than what we see in one another. And honestly, it's amazing that we as brothers can admire the giftings of our sisters and sisters can admire the giftings of their brothers and we're family and we have this God that loves us and he made no mistakes concerning us. But in the mind of even Jeroboam, you're just going, what were you thinking? And he wasn't. That's the simple point that I'm making. He chose to please people that at that time he needed to correct. In the church, there is an incumbent responsibility that the people of the culture are corrected. It doesn't mean by thumping them with the Bible, but it does mean standing on the word of God as truth. Because without truth, people will become their own truth. And becoming their own truth as people know, meaning that they will then become simply a proponent of a lie. And that's where the stop needs to happen. People want truth, but because they're refusing to listen to the word of God, to come into the house of the Lord for God, then they are vulnerable to making up their own rules. Heresy and apostasy marry one another. And it's terrible what the outcome is, which is idolatry. This altar is split. The ashes fall in place. This will happen once again, 300 years in the future. Only the bones that will be on it will be the priests that have caused this to happen. They won't be necessarily from the crypts, they will be those very likely that will have been judged by God. And so as the king answers this, entreat the favor of what? Your God. We know where his heart was. He left God somewhere from the promise to the responsibility. And so it says this, the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. This is called intercession. This is the responsibility of a church that loves God and is willing to give the benefit even of our doubts to one who has literally begged for a judgment. God's being gracious. He is gracious. Every single one of us sitting here knows the times in which we were teased by heresy or apostasy a little bit of the mixing of both. 
And somehow, some way, as God does, he never gave up. Evidence of kindness. Blessings that were manifested to us from the oration of somebody's mouth. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. The Lord is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And I've shared it before, but the Lord got me with a coffee cup doing dishes one morning. As a, probably a 17-year-old. On this particular cup, that had a floral design on one side of it. Classic 70s yucky green yellow. And as I spun it around to make it fit better, emblazoned on it was Jesus is Lord. And I chose to put it through the rinse cycle, and I turned that phrase from me. Was I being malicious? No. Was I being irreverent? Possibly. Did I really know what I was doing? No. It was just a practical thing. I know now as I look back, it was a soul in conflict. As 17, where we admire our young generation, I was not one of them. You would have been delighted to see me because I wasn't a bad person, but I wasn't spiritually committed to the Lord. And I asked myself, how could I have not been? I grew up in a Baptist church. Baptists don't let that happen. <laughs> but it happened. It happened. It can happen. And I never forgot about it. That on one given day, a ceramic cup that could have been broken by my carelessness or my rebelliousness. I will not listen to this coffee cup again. And so I drink coffee cups reverently, remembering Jesus is Lord. I don't want a bitter cup, and I don't want a bitter future. But this has happened. He entreats the man, and the man treats him to grace. Be mindful that it is our responsibility to treat men and women who don't know their coffee cups from their teacups from their dog's dish. They just got misled. They just perhaps got off track. Never were grounded or grounded by reasons of influence were just persuaded differently. The Lord's kindness leads men, women, children to repentance. He doesn't acknowledge this God who spoke to him in a beautiful promise, he now acknowledges only this man's God can heal him. So the entreaty works. Prayer does work. Intercession does have an effect of restoration. However, this restoration was meant to be effectual. What happens? Well, from what we see, the king said to the man of God, come home with me and Refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. Is that a genuine turning of the heart, or is it a conspiracy of politics? That's probably, in fact, what we'll see it was. 
But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. Why? Verse 9 says, for so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father, but by him. So there is a little bit of a principle in there. And the Lord was saying, through this message that was correctly rendered, and through the miracle which validated this guy was authentic, that for him, a responsibility on moving forward was necessary. It was necessary so that he would not be caught, if you would, in the political climate of that day or the religious irregularities or what we would say the heresy and apostasy. If he'd been found in the home eating and drinking and fellowshipping with this king, he would become noted as endorsing what had been now judged. Essentially, we are responsible for who we hang with. Paul does, though, tell us that we need to have a distinguishing discernment because we can't fully reject those who have rejected God. But at the same time, we call them to our side. We don't have to go to their side. And that's a difference. Hey, Jeroboam, take a walk with me. But I cannot dine with you. I am not to drink water. I'm not to even rest till I get back. But if you have some things you want to talk over about God, whom right now you cannot dispute, has worked through this time, I'm willing to seek God on your behalf, as I have for your wellness. You've got a hand now that works. I suggest you learn how to clasp it with the other and pray. I suggest you learn how to let go of that in politics which is defiling spirituality. I can take a walk with you as long as our conversation is about God who desires better from you. So we have a means by saying, I cannot go where you're at, but you can come to where I am going, to the house of the Lord. You can come and visit God through the scriptures that I can cite. But I will not go your way. I will not dine in your dainties. Do you remember that even Daniel? So if we have 300 years to Josiah, and 200 years after that, a judgment will be rendered from the beginning right now of Rehoboam's reign, that Daniel will be a part of that judgment, but he will be elevated in it and through it to be a messenger in Babylon. These are all things that are happening well in advance of anybody's comprehension, which is why we need to have a future thought rather than simply present tense remedy. I want to get out of this. This is, you're in it. I've been in it. You're in it. And you do not yet know the time or why for such a time you have been permitted to be here. Did you realize that, that we could say, as it was spoken to Esther, for such a time 
as this. You've been raised up. A royal priesthood, Jesus would be able to say through the scriptures concerning what we really are. Because the Lord's speaking through the whole context of scripture. All doctrine is given by God. It's spirit-breathed, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, all of these things, for teaching, that the man of God, man of God, which is what he's referred to, can be thoroughly furnished into all good works. We can be equipped, is what is being said. And so the man of God makes an accurate rendering of what he's been told to do. And as it continues, verse 10, so he went another way, that's obedience, not return by the way he came to Bethel. He's passed the first test. Great. Second test, not so good. Let's get into it. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, verse 11, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. How would they have known? Instagram? Facebook? How would they have known about it? They may have been very close to it. Or word traveled. And it may have been holy fear that had now spread. He's beginning to have notoriety popularity. What would have been done would have been unthought of to make an approach to any king, let alone Jeroboam, whose personality would have meant that guy is bad, bad to the bone. He burns bones on the altar. You don't want to stand in front of him. This guy did. Notoriety, popularity, success in the mission, And so they tell their father, and their father said to them, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went, who came from Judah. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. Verse 14, and went after the man of God and found him, notice this, sitting under an oak. And then he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. His act of obedience required not to eat, not to drink, not to fellowship in that place. He declines Jeroboam's offer. He moves obediently to where we find him. But notice this parallel that I think is, I think, very appropriate. I'm going to draw it out of First Peter, and this is what in this man's heart may have been his conviction, which is our conviction. But in order for a conviction to have relevancy, it needs to also have with it a commitment. Conviction requires commitment. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. 
and verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Meaning that all are vulnerable to the wiles of the devil who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And to do so, what does he do? He gets into your heart. He gets into your mind. He corrupts the things that one time you would have pledged are non-negotiables. So as this man continues to move, the only fault that we can find right now is that he sat down. We're sitting down to worship the Lord. We're sitting down to study the Word of God. But this indicates it's to seek an untimely rest. He needed to only sit down when he reached his destination, which was returning to the place in Judah that he came from, opposite the way he entered. He wasn't to go the way that he passed by. In other words, go back that way. That's the picture. He was to show people a picture of movement back to a place of spiritual, at least from where he was sent, integrity. Because at this time, there was still the worship of God being conducted in Jerusalem, closer to where, obviously, they were in Rehoboam's area where he had constructed a false religious system. So sitting down there, he made himself vulnerable. He acknowledges that I am the man of God. Important to acknowledge that we are men and women of God. But then we also now have to be wise and discerning what it means when that probing comes. Notice this. Come home with me and eat bread. He just heard that. Let's see if he abides. And he said, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place where I have been told by the word of the Lord. You shall not eat bread nor drink water there nor return by going the way you came. So that would be returning or going the way that you came because he's passed all of that up. This man had to pursue him, and he only caught up to him because, in this case, this prophet rested. But we're to keep watch diligently. We're to be not mindful that when we are not moving forward in our faith, then we're stalled. And the stalling is what, at times, permits Satan to attack. Verse 18, he said to him, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. We have in parentheses, he was lying to him. And so we went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. What did he need to do? He needed to, like Daniel and his brethren would do, Seek the Lord in prayer, asking for wisdom and discernment, 
to render an answer that would be appropriately linked to the mission that he had to satisfy. That's it. That's all he needed to do. But as I voiced in last week's teaching, R&R seemed to be his disadvantage. And I was using that in the context of veterans and foreign wars. They try to give them an opportunity to be refreshed. They'll send them to whatever. That which is not engaged in the military conflict, the Philippines, Hawaii, some went home only to be called up, but they were no longer sharp. They were no longer battle ready. They had become weak. Their minds drifted. They couldn't stay focused. And the temptation of saying, what I've got to do is distracting right now to what I want to do. I want to be back with my family. I want to be in my country. I don't like where I'm at. And that decision in combat would cost men, women, their lives. And this is what happened in this case. He moves to no longer follow in the adamant instructions of God, but in the persuasions of a man who has pronounced himself as a prophet. Oh, okay, I got something similar with this guy. We can talk about God. Okay, seems to be good enough. But Paul would say in sight that if an angel tried to persuade you contrary to the gospel message, you are not to tend to that. No one has a persuasive voice that's contrary to the word of God with regard to the gospel and what we are to do concerning doctrine. And so he goes, he went back with him, verse 19, and ate bread in his house and drank water. Verse 20, the correction of the Lord. Now it happened that as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah saying, thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment, which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back, ate bread, drank water in the place of which the Lord said to you, eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your father's so it was after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. So one man contributing to another man's demise, but the responsibility falls still on the man rather than seeking discernment, chose the way in which there would be assumed the position. Because God was serious about the message and the picture that would be given to the next generation. The picture that would also be authored from Rehoboam's perspective, hmm, wow, if it happened to Jeroboam, then something like that could happen to me as well because I'm not doing any better. That's the idea, is that when we follow the prescription of God for the remedy of the wayward soul, then we're used as examples of triumph and not tragedy. The Lord can use tragedy in any way he chooses to. But in this case, it's definitely against a false religious system and against a false prophet. When did he become false? As soon as he began to lie. He could have slapped this younger prophet. We assume that because the contrast is an older prophet on the back and said, good job. Pfft, I should have been doing that. 
I probably missed that appointment by just one prayer. Good job. Here, I've got some biscuits. Wait, I can't give you biscuits. Forget that. <laughs> you told me you can't have food. But I'm letting you know I'm praying for you. Carry on with the mission. You've inspired me now in your commitment to stay true to God's word. You've inspired me now to clean up my own town. And that's really what obedience does. It's an inspiration to challenge other and inspire them to do what you're willing to do. This must have been, in one utterance, the most ruthless case of indigestion that a man could have, to be dining only to hear that it's a short meal and a short walk. You're not going back home now. There's going to be a judgment pending. For this man to entreat him to eat, and then from the same mouth, who at one time lied to him to get him to there, he now speaks the oracles of God and then saddles the donkey, basically, that is going to be the vehicle of deliverance in this case. Wow. And that's what we see here. And it was after he'd eaten bread and after he'd drunk that he saddled a donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. This is a time in which that prophet should have assumed the position. I am sorry, Lord. I blew it. Forgive me. That's why when we come to church, we have an opportunity that in our times of the transgressions, we're able to say, Lord, make it right. Make it right. I've muddied things up. Make it right. I want to do right. I've heard this voice. Why? Because one of the things we understand based on the text I read, all the way back in Exodus, is that God's merciful. That was actually taken from the Psalms. But God's merciful, gracious, abounding in the things that men are not capable of abounding in. And so when he was gone, verse 24, a lion met him on the road and killed him, and his corpse was thrown on the road. And the donkey stood by it, and the lion also stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. There's no trouble interpreting the event that happened because he was the voice of the judgment. There is the voice of a judgment that's pending that people will remember based on what it is you warn them of. These days are necessary for warnings, but most importantly for welcomings. You're welcome to escape that. You are welcome to come in and understand the love of God for you. You are welcome to be inviting in yourself, the Spirit of God, to your heart. And so he understands what he forgot in perhaps his prophetic lethargy. 
He spoke to his sons, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled it. And then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse nor torn the donkey. This is not a picture of Satan who walks about. This is a picture of the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's a symbol of a judgment. Because the man of God came by the word of the Lord, then a picture which this represents is corrective. He's not torn by a swat. Very likely he met his demise. Maybe by a roar, his breath was taken from him. But his corpse was not torn. It seems to be a correction. And because he's not ravaged, we know that that cannot be a picture of Satan. It's a spiritual picture of a divine intervention to say to all peoples everywhere, don't mess with God. Don't mess with him. Do his word. Apply yourself to his compassionate bidding. Don't think you can go it your way. Don't think you can have it your way. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, brought it back, and the old prophet came to the city to mourn and to bury him. And in verse 30, then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And so it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb, where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which is cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines and the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. He knows in his heart that what this man said by the display that was miraculous at the altar, it was going to come to pass. And it inspired him enough to say, if this is as far as this man can go, it's sufficient that I will rest with him. I've been delinquent in my duties as a prophet in this town, but I am going to make my statement willing to be buried with him in what was truth. I am the one that promoted him to this untimely end because I lied to him, but now I will lie with him. I will be one who puts my bones with his bones. I will say what he did I should have done, and what I can't do now I will make a statement with what my sons will do with me. And after this event, Jeroboam did not, notice this, turn from evil or from his evil way. But again, he made priests from every class of people for the high places, whoever wished, the, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. Verse 34, and this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. That would be a pending judgment upon Jeroboam that will happen within the next chapters. I have for you something that I think is both contemporarily applicable to men who by heritage were Jewish, are Jewish by heritage, and they penned a song. See if it has application to where we are at presently. It's called The Sound of Silence. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping 
left its seeds while I was sleeping, and the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. In restless dreams I walked alone, narrow streets of cobblestone, neath the halo of a street lamp. I turned my collar to the cold and damp when my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a neon light that split the night and touched the sound of silence. And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more, people talking without speaking, people hearing without listening, people writing songs that voices never shared. No one dared disturb the sound of silence. Fools, said I, you do not know. Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But my words like silent raindrops fell and echoed in the wells of silence. And the people bowed and prayed to the neon god they made. And the sign flashed out its warning and the words that it was forming. And the sign said the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls and tenement halls and whispered in the sounds of silence. Highly influential to their generation, amazing songwriters. And you can hear spirituality in here as they assess to their culture, and we can hear it as well. You can almost see God speaking through this. Silence like a cancer grows. Hear my words that I might teach you. Take my arms that I might reach you. But God's words, like silent raindrops, fell and echoed in the wells of silence. I added, God's words fell and echoed in the wells of silence. Tenement halls. Those things that are dwelling places that are owned by those who are princes over those who dwell in them. Who's your daddy? God the Father. In where we dwell and in the house of the Lord that we are, he is sovereign. And we honor him in this place. And we see a culture that after decades and decades and decades and decades and decades, decades, 1960. I think four or eight, the song was penned. And God used two men actually to give a generation a warning of a pathetic investment of their time when the culture was saying, we can't hear, we can't see, we can't be satisfied. And God says, take of me, dine of me, Drink of me, come to me.